0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams.
1: And I'm Kirk McElhern.
0: Hello, and thanks for joining us today on The Next Track. This is episode number 86. This is the first episode of the new year, 2018, and we thought we'd be a little conventional with, um, for lack of a better description, New Year's resolutions, although I'm not sure we're going to resolve to do any of these things. They're more like um, aspirations.
1: So, yeah, we were talking about things that we might want to consider changing, doing differently. And I, I'm, I've never been a New Year's resolution person, but it, it is a good time to take stock of certain things. And in our case, we were discussing some New Year's resolutions around music.
0: One of the things that has been on my list for a long time what that I've never been able to do properly, is try some different media players, something different from iTunes. Both of us are frequently asked, uh, are there any good iTunes alternatives? And there are a number of media players available, but I'm unable to recommend any because I haven't really been able to spend any time with them. To be fair to any of them requires a, a certain commitment. Now, I'm fairly committed and invested in iTunes. I've been using it for years. I write software for it. But also... I like iTunes.
1: It's familiar. It's like an old pair of blue jeans that you've been wearing for 20 years.
0: Yeah. And whenever I've looked at other players, you know, if they don't grab me in the first five minutes, I'd just dismiss them. So this year, I'd like to pick a handful of different players and get over the learning curve or the unfamiliarity or whatever it is that resulted in me giving them short shrift and actually commit to giving them a week or two to see what they can do. And... It is a commitment. I'm probably going to have to set up a different library. I'm going to have to learn some new routines. If they're Apple scriptable or can otherwise be automated, of course, I'm going to want to mess around with that. So I'd like to spend some serious time evaluating some iTunes alternatives, not because I want to, I don't want to exit the iTunes ecosystem, but I just want to have a better feel for the state of the art, so to speak. You know, what else is out there?
1: Well, let's break them down into two types. There is the basic type, um, Swincyon is an example. It looks pretty much like an iTunes clone, except it's a little bit less attractive. And all it does is manage and play your music. But the other kind are these so-called audiophile music player apps, and they're supposed to make the music sound better. Um, I'm highly skeptical about that, and, and, and I don't see the interest in paying the cost for them. There are other solutions, such as Rune, which examines your library, presents it in a different way. You can even use Plex for your music library, which never really worked for me because of the way my metadata um, works and the way it displays but things. What, what
0: ex- now, what exactly was the problem that you had with Plex for audio? Because you use it for video.
1: It, it doesn't give you enough options as to how you view the music. It's, I think it's pretty much song artist album is all you have, and the way album art displays is not ideal, and, and it didn't find album art for a lot of my music. I haven't tried it in a long time, and, and I owe myself to go back and try it again. The same with Rune. I tried Rune when it first started out, and it was like It would sort music, I guess it was doing some sort of matching, and I don't think it was acoustic fingerprinting, I think it was matching the tags, and I remember it was putting some Frank Sinatra songs in the Hawaiian music genre. Um, My classical music was all over the place. It wouldn't display album artwork for everything, and and I think there's some similarity between Plex and Rune, the way they display album artwork, and it really wasn't that flexible if you don't use a standard tagging system for classical music.
0: I'm wondering if I can overcome those limitations just so that's one of the things i want to try is see if i can overcome those limitations to actually get a feel for how the software works so if i i mean because you run up against things like that in itunes too which you forgive and i can't think of any off the top of my head because if i run into a problem with iTunes, because
1: we've adapted with workarounds and apple scripts
0: exactly and so one of the one of the problems I have when I start one of these things is because the familiarity isn't there, and it means I have to change my perspective or change my routine or whatever. But I, I think I really want to try to overcome that, even though, you know, my front brain says this will never work for you. But I really want to try to get into it and overcome those 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 limitations that I discovered in the first fifteen minutes. But really, sw- you know, sp- spend some time swimming. With the app
1: there is a problem though there is a platform lock-in since we both use apple music we wouldn't have that option with another media player and we're as we've said many times we're both committing more and more to apple music as a source of music and that would mean using two different apps one for your own library one for apple music now as we have both pointed out how we don't want our own music in the Apple Music library. This could be an actual solution, that when you want to play your own music, you play it through a different app. And when you want to play Apple Music, you play it through iTunes and you build up your Apple Music library in iTunes. So it's entirely possible. I'm just not sure it's the ideal solution. I kind of like the the, the single app choice myself. But I, I agree. I, I think this is something we should both look at, report back on the show. Maybe we'll get some of the people from the companies that make this software to talk about their different solutions and see how they work out.
0: That's a great idea. And and let me emphasize, I'm not interested in having a permanent solution because I don't have a problem. I just am interested in how these apps go.
1: So another one that you put in our shared list is trying another streaming service.
0: Yeah, as you just said, both of us are somewhat committed to Apple Music. We've both attempted to use Spotify. We'll talk about that in a minute. I use Pandora, um, although I'm not using Pandora as much now uh, because I'm using Apple Music more. So I find myself going uh, less frequently to uh, Pandora to listen. I've never tried Google Play. I haven't really tried Tidal, SoundCloud, YouTube Red, any of those I haven't really tried at all. But there are uh, lots of little streaming services that cater to niche formats or niche genres or niche audiences. So I'd like to give some of those a try.
1: Yeah. The, so these are two limited me neither of us like spotify because of the ugly black interface yeah i find it hard to read and and i just don't understand the logic in spotify
0: well that's what i'm talking about i mean i want to overcome those problems that i've had with it in the past i mean millions of people use spotify and don't have a problem with it so why can't i
1: well if they if the interface was more attractive then i would consider doing it and if i'm not mistaken we can't even use it on the web anymore well you need Flash Player installed to use it on the web, and I don't want that in my browsers. So that means you have to use the Spotify app. Uh, it's not—it's not ideal for me. I, I think the fact that they are frozen in the interface and don't give any options is pretty clear that they don't really care about how users interact with the music. They just want people to play playlists and and play hits. Uh, I think the other—the two major players other than that for me would be Tidal. And I'm not interested in committing to Tidal because they're not going to last long. And I know there are listeners of this show who have got Tidal because it has lossless streaming and some high-res streaming and MQA and all these audiophile things. But I I think their lifespan is is relatively short. There's also the French company Kobuz that's launching very soon in the US. Now, I subscribed to Kobuz about six years ago, the last year I was in France, and I canceled my subscription... I think I subscribed for a year and then I canceled my subscription because it just wasn't. I wasn't making use of it because I hadn't adopted the streaming mentality. One of the advantages of CoBuzz is they have really good liner notes for a lot of oh. things, and particularly classical and jazz music. Yeah. And that's something we both miss from, you know, being used to playing CDs and then going to iTunes where we don't have any of that. But yeah, I'm already paying ten bucks a month for Apple Music. Do I really want to pay another ten bucks a month for another service? Or try it for two weeks and then try another one. And another. It's, it's it's a tough call to get people to change when they're committed. And in particular, I just re-upped for 12 months of Apple Music because you can get 12 months for $100.
0: Yeah, but um, it's not like I don't have different video apps for different video streaming services. And, you know, at the risk of sounding like an old fogey, you know, back in the day, you'd have a radio and a turntable and a cassette and maybe an 8 track and maybe a reel to reel machine. So, you I'm used to having uh different audio sources. So, having a different streaming service, you know, it might be interesting. Plus, like I said, it's not something I want to do permanently. It's just something I want to try out to see how it works.
1: But but uh, so, okay, so my logic is I'm already paying for it on Apple Music and if the same thing is available on a different service, what am I gaining? It's it's not that Let's say ECM had not decided to stream their music everywhere, but it was available on Qobuz, which was the case in the past. And I took a Qobuz subscription in part because I wanted to stream ECM and, and some classical labels that don't stream a lot. So that would be an alternative just to get these, this particular content that wasn't available on Apple Music. But if the same thing is available on two services, the only differentiator is ease of use. And price, and, and as far as price is concerned, they're all aligned. 10 bucks a month, 10 pounds a month, 10 euros a month. And the ease of use for me is, well, AirPlay, um, essentially, which means, you know, using it from my Mac or using it from my iPhone or iPad and AirPlaying it to whatever I want to listen on.
0: That I definitely agree. Having AirPlay is super key. Um, I, I just love using the remote app on my iPad mini to control... Three, four, five devices it's just it's phenomenal. It's really great, and getting out of that ecosystem would, would definitely be a detriment to my music listening experience. But the, you know the interesting thing about about paying for services is, again, going back to the day, if you bought four records a month, you that's like maybe sixty dollars. But I certainly spend much less than sixty dollars a month now on music consumption. I mean, in fact, I would include the video consumption that I do. I probably don't spend more than sixty or eighty dollars a month on all our music and video consumption in the house, and we have Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime and apple music so the price the price argument I'm not sure if if that's really valid because I've certainly been willing in the past to pay more for 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 music
1: well, times have changed and the way we think about how we spend our money has changed and, and when we paid more for music. We didn't have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and and all those things. We, here we have Netflix and we've paid for Netflix forever. We just ignore the payment. It's just it it's a utility. Right. It's like the water. Yeah. Um, we have a Amazon Prime, but it's mostly for the delivery and and the other services. And, and the video is actually a sort of a app that Amazon Prime added a few years ago. We don't have any other service that we pay for. We rent movies from the iTunes Store when we want to see something particular. But we don't do it that much, so I guess yeah. In a way, it's kind of cheap to not want to pay another ten dollars a month. But it's still another ten dollars a month that I might not be using. I wouldn't say
0: it's cheap. It's it's economical
1: for sure. It's frugal.
0: Yeah, it's frugal and it's practical. We are frugal up. listeners. I get that completely. Absolutely, I think you know that's one of the things that these services want us to consider. It's like if you're only going to spend ten dollars, then spend it with us.
1: Yeah. Well, one, one thing I want to do a little bit more is explore music in different genres, genres that I don't listen to a lot. And some of them might be genres that I like, and some might be genres I'm not familiar with. Um, listeners can go back to episode number seven, where we talked about genres and how genre separates music. I'm, I'm in Apple Music on iTunes right now, and I click the genres tab, and there are about 30 different genres. And this morning, I went through a number of them. I thought, well, let me see what this is like. K-pop. Never listened to K-pop before. So I go to K-pop and I find a playlist. I think it's the A-list playlist, which is the thing that Apple has for each genre for what's new. And I start playing. Well, the first song starts with a piano thing, kind of sounds like Billy Joel. Doesn't sound very Korean. The second one starts with a piano thing, kind of sounds like Elton John. Doesn't sound very Korean. The third one kind of sounds like Taylor Swift type pop. And the fourth one kind of sounds like... Um, whatever other pop. And and frankly, I, I went a long way before I got anything that sounded Korean other than the names of the singers and the lyrics to the songs.
0: Well, maybe they need to introduce a 31st genre, uh, K-pop, that doesn't sound like K-pop. That might, <laughs> that might be a hit.
1: My point, however, is that a lot of this music... Well, I remember in the, the... Here we go. Back in the old days, <laughs> in the 1970s, I'd every once in a while pick up an album, and, and I might have heard something on... Fordham University radio station, where they had these, you know, amateur DJs in the evening and would play some weird things. And I would pick up some of these, what we call world music albums. I'd get, you know, a French record or an Afrobeat record, Fela Kuti, that I discovered in the 1970s. Great example. But today, as I was going through most of these genres, so much of this music sounded alike. even the reggae genre, a lot of it sounds just like standard hip hop and doesn't sound that much like the reggae that, you know, that, that, that blossomed in the 1970s. 70s was real, you know, the real heyday of reggae. There, there are genres that really don't interest me Latino, Musica Tropical, Musica Mexicana, things like that, Urbano Latino. But interestingly, much of that sounds like American slash English pop music. So I went to the world genre because, well, OK, there's a lot of interesting things that come out of Africa and Asia and, you know, even South America and all these countries. And yet I was playing some of this stuff and it sounds like American music, sometimes with lyrics in a different language.
0: It sounds like they're assigning the genre to the person rather than to the uh, the music they're playing, the indigenous folk music of whatever, you know, geographic area they're coming from. But that aside, what genre of music or what different genres do you want to start listening to?
1: Well, I, I want to go through some of the world music, particularly, I'd like to find some Indian classical music, you know, the 30-minute the, the raga on sitar. I really like that stuff. And the only way to find it is to search for raga. There's no sort of... In the world genre, unfortunately, there are no signposts to get you to different countries' music. You, you have to search for playlists or titles and all that, and, and it would be useful if there was you know an indian classical subgenre, an afrobeat subgenre, without having to know the names of some of these artists to look for them so it it's really a bit of a slog to try and find it yeah well you're having the problem that
0: we often talk about and that's the problem with discovery right and you're going to have to do your own research you're going to have to do google searches and read music magazines and and talk to real people and you kind of have to ignore the algorithms. But
1: but I do want to try some other genres. I mean, I, I don't like rap and hip hop. It just doesn't turn me on. Hard rock, I don't like. Classic rock is, you know, this is the same stuff. This is oldies, and we've been hearing this for since forever.
0: One of the advantages to using Apple Music, as we both are, to source your music is that you don't have to acquire the music. And I know since listening to more streaming, I'm buying fewer downloads, and I'm Uh, Buying fewer CDs, actually. And I I know you usually buy a lot of CDs, but this is something that you're considering tapering back on, right?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I buy a lot. And as I said in a recent episode, there are a few artists whose music I buy regularly Bill Nelson, Daruti Column, John Fox, Grateful Dead, Brad Meldow. I'll buy his CDs, even though his stuff's available for streaming. But for the most part, I've given up buying CDs. I, I stopped buying the big classical box sets. And there could be one or two that come out from an artist I really like and that could sway me. I am still waiting for the big box set of Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau's recordings, which he died a few years ago, and and I'm surprised that Universal Records, who owns Deutsch Gramophone, Philips, and Decca, has not released the 300-CD box set of his music yet. Maybe it's licensing that they're working on. But for the most part, I don't buy individual CDs at all. I, I don't... The occasional box set and... And and those few artists that I mentioned, and that's pretty much it. And this is a bit problematic for the recording industry, the fact that people who do like a lot of music are giving up and just spending their 10 bucks a month. Now, I used to spend way more than 10 bucks a month on CDs. In any given year, I'd probably spend several hundred. And yeah, I'd rather just save that money because there are too many CDs that I've bought that I listened to once or twice and never listen to again. You know, the, the thrill of the collection is gone now that most of this stuff is available.
0: Right. We talked a little about this last week on the episode, How Much Music Is Too Much. And I'm finding that I'm buying fewer CDs also. And except for cases like, you know, some kind of rare CD or an import CD or something, uh, I'm just not buying CDs as frequently as I used to. And most of them just stay in the closet.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I rarely look at them again. They're they're in a storage room upstairs, although I do keep box sets in my office and I have a CD player and I will go through and play CDs sometimes because I like that, that old-fashioned process of putting a CD in a player, you know, that the real nostalgic thing.
0: Oh, you like that, do you? That's really
1: yeah, nice. You, yeah, you have to put a penny on the laser <laughs> to make sure it, it's got the right weight to read the CD correctly. And, yeah. you know, there, there's a... There's an old school feeling to that, you know, put on a candle and pretend there's no electricity.
0: Uh, Well, so now you have all these CDs, uh, I think it's probably time to get rid of a lot of them. I think I'm I'm definitely thinking of boxing them up and bringing them down to a used CD place to see if I can get some money for them. Because I just really have not explored the closet of old CDs in a long time. I think I've pretty much got everything. Uh, I may go over it one more time, but I think I'd like to get rid of them.
1: The the last time we moved, about a year and a half ago, I shipped off five or six boxes to a company here in the UK that buys used books and CDs and DVDs. I got £600 for it, which is not a lot when you think how much stuff was in it. But these were all DVDs that I'd watched. These were all CDs and I'd listened to and books that I'd read. I did keep a lot of stuff, things that they weren't paying enough for. And I sell them on Amazon, CDs, books, DVDs that I don't want anymore. And I've been culling my book collection a lot. It's a waiting game on Amazon. I, I always price my stuff less than other people's, and, and my stuff is always in really good quality. It's always like new. You, um, you and sell if you,
0: on Amazon? Sorry? You sell your stuff through Amazon.
1: Yeah, anyone can sell as a third party marketplace seller on Amazon. You can set up an account and sell.
0: Well, you know, I, of course, I know Amazon sells stuff, but I didn't know that regular people could just, you know, sell their stuff on it like that
1: you have to obviously ship everything you could send all your stuff to amazon and let them ship it but then you have to pay for storage and it's really not worth it otherwise you ship it so i get an order i print out a thing i take an old amazon mailer that i've saved wrap it up drop it in the post box down on the corner you, you see now you do that you do
0: that you sell a lot of you ship a lot of stuff out of your house because you you don't keep a lot of equipment either you sell a lot of equipment too
1: yeah if if i've got um hardware that i don't need anymore I generally sell it. So for instance, this microphone that I'm speaking in now, I bought a few months ago. And once I determined that it was sufficient, I sold the previous one on eBay. And I don't know, I paid 120 pounds for the previous one and I sold it on eBay for 95. So it, it's both to clear out the house and to make some cash. I have a, a, one of the bedrooms upstairs is my second office where I store stuff. And a lot of this stuff has been building up for years and computer stuff and you know, electronics and, and old TV and things. And so I've been selling more and more on eBay. I, I bought a new amplifier recently and I sold and, and I moved around a Blu-ray optical disc player that was in the TV room into my office. I sold the previous amplifier and CD player this weekend on eBay. Anytime I can sell something quickly, I'll sell it because in a year it's going to be worth less.
0: That may be something that I can resolve to do because I don't do that at all. I've got stuff I've bought Ten, fifteen years ago, and it 's sitting right there. you know as soon as I took it out of commission, it didn 't go to my second office. it stayed right here i've got i 've got three iMacs sitting on the floor in various degrees of needing repair i haven 't done anything with them I mean I, there are tons of Mac places in Boston I could go and, and have them fixed or I could sell them um, i 've got Tons of hardware and gear, I just don 't get rid of it. I just accumulate it, and I think one of the things I probably should do is just go through all the drawers, find all the little gizmos, find all the little cables, find you know sell these imax um, and and just get rid of it all because it's I, at my age i don 't need to be carting around all this hardware I really really don't especially when it's most of it 's obsolete i I have so many thirty pin USB connectors for iPods. I mean, I've got a drawer full of them. I could probably get 20 bucks for for a dozen of them or something.
1: Yeah. Some years ago, I bought a couple of Thunderbolt hard drives in particular for my media, and they weren't great. I mean, they worked fine, but I, I found that USB 3.0 was just as fast and less expensive. So early this year, I shifted over to some 8 terabyte USB 3.0 drives, and I have three of them for my media and for my backups. And I sold the Thunderbolt drives and then I sold the Thunderbolt cables separately because they're relatively expensive. I think I sold three cables on eBay for 60 pounds. I maybe paid a hundred, but it's better to get that 60 pounds and dedicate it to something else than to just let it sit around. I've never kept a Mac long enough for it to grow moss. I bought a new laptop two months ago and as soon as I bought it, I sold the previous one on eBay.
0: Right, right. I I know that's a tradition that people do and that's a very sensible thing to do. Uh, I just I, maybe i just can 't let go of these things i 'm still using a a seventeen inch MacBook pro from ten years ago that 's run snow leopard and I use it as a as a like a pseudo music server that 's about it because I just can 't part with it
1: yeah, but it works you 're using it see i ha- i have I have no need for a second laptop I need one, and when I get a new one, the previous one is is useless to me and i'd rather get money and in fact, I sold the MacBook for about half what I paid for it two and a half years ago, which when you think about it you know, since it's a Mac, it really does retain a lot of value. For that reason alone, you know, I sell everything. I do have some old iPods. I ha- I have the Apple drawer over there with old iPods and some Apple watch bands. And You, you want to buy
0: some 30-pin connectors, I got
1: No. <laughs> no. I even have some iPod docks. But sometime this year, I sold an old iPod dock for 10 pounds on Amazon.
0: Right. Somebody wants it.
1: And, you know, you add it up. I'm looking... Behind you in that cube there, I see all those little Apple boxes from like iPods and things. If you look through there, I'm sure you can get, you know, 20 bucks for this, 50 bucks for that. It adds up to a decent amount of money when you think about it. It takes a fair amount of work to manage all this when you're you're selling stuff, but we have a, a mailbox right on the corner. Larger packages, I only have to drive a mile to drop them off. So Yeah.
0: I, you know, I think the problem for me is that I have enough trouble trying to wrap Christmas and birthday presents, and the project of actually trying to prepare something for shipment is a bit daunting and obviously these things haven't moved in ten or fifteen years, so i've been pretty lazy about
1: it you have been yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, so when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, even into my twenties i was not when I was not working, I was playing music, and my goal at at an early age was i'm going to be a semi professional musician, my father did it for his entire life when he was a semi-professional musician. He played music all the time. I've stopped doing that. And I I really feel like I've got to, I've got to try to either pick up the guitar or sit at the keyboard for a couple of hours a week anyway, just, just to do it. But it's amazed me that I've moved so far away from that. Whereas playing music was the thing that I wanted to do the most. And now it's the thing that I actually do the least.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's the same with me. I started playing guitar when I was about 16 and played a lot for years and spent so much time jamming with friends. And I'd always be walking back and forth with my guitar and its case and from, you know, my house to someone else's house. And and for a long time I it I stopped and I, I've played some other instruments over the years. I played Viola de gamba for a year, which is a wonderful instrument, but then I had a car accident and I couldn't hold it correctly without being in pain and, and it was an instrument I hadn't bought, I was renting. So I um, gave that up. I bought a digital piano some years ago, and, well, I just wasn't good enough because I wanted to play Bach. I didn't want to play, you know, chopsticks and things, and and it was just, you know, too old to learn. I've been playing blues guitar for a while, and, you know, I'm doing okay because that brings back the guitar that I used to play back in the day. But I recently bought a shakuhachi, and I'm going to try to learn the shakuhachi. I mentioned it in one of my next track picks a few weeks ago. It is a Japanese flute that you hold vertically and you blow over this bit that's been shaved off it's made of bamboo. It's extremely difficult to even play a single note, but there are people who give lessons over Skype and I figured it's only got five holes. how hard can it be? <laughs> it's only got six <laughs> strings. How hard could it be right you know? and and even and and even if I don't you know do much, it's just the fact of doing music it's you know creating music even if it's just even if it's crappy sounding you know a little bit. Even, well, no one's going to know except for the cats, and they won't say anything because they can't tell good music from bad.
0: A project I've been thinking about doing along those lines is to use GarageBand or Logic and using the musical sounds in there and, and do some sequencing. Find a, a decent drummer and find a decent bass and find a nice keyboard, some Hammond B3 or something, and then create some loops and play guitar to that. And that way, you know, I'd be in charge. So, one of the things I really liked about um, when I got into doing sequencing back in the day, was that I was in complete control, and it was a lot more fun doing it that way.
1: Did you ever have those Music Minus One records back in the day? My
0: mother did. My mother used to play uh, cello to Music Minus One, so...
1: Th- those were cool. I had some guitar records like that, and those were very cool. For those who don't remember, it would be a recording of everything but one instrument, so you could play along as if you had an orchestra or a band in your house, and they were really quite fascinating. My guess is that these things are easily downloadable. It's It's like... It's like instrumental karaoke when you think about it, right? You've, you've got the backing music and you get a, a score with the sheet music and you just play along and you just go over and over and over and play along until you got it down. But you can do it with your eyes closed without looking at the score.
0: I had, well, probably like a lot of people, I had the poor man's version of that. And that was essentially just to throw on, get your ya-ya's out or performance rock on the Fillmore or the who live at Leeds and just playing along to it. So that was my music minus one.
1: So New Year's here, if any listeners have been motivated by this episode, drop us a line or, or post a comment on the show page telling us what New Year's resolutions you're going to make. And, and they're not resolutions, as, as Doug said earlier, just ideas and guidance and, you know, ways to change things a little bit.
0: And in that spirit, keep an eye out for my Amazon store where I sell nothing but crummy old 30-pin USB connectors that have been sitting around in a drawer for a couple of years. In fact, that might even be the name of the store. <laughs> We do a little thing here at the end of the program where we present our next tracks. So that is the music that we're going to be listening to soon that we have a little of of enthusiasm for Kirk, what are you going to be listening to?
1: My next track this week isn't very obscure, but this is an artist that I think most people haven't heard of, at least as an artist. Daniel Lanois is a Canadian musician and producer, and he's really well known for his production of U2, Bob Dylan. He produced Time Out of Mind and Oh Mercy. He's worked with Brian Eno And he's also been a performer since the 1980s. He's recorded a number of solo albums. One of his albums popped up in Apple Music's For You the other day, and and I hadn't ever heard this one. It's called For the Beauty of Winona. 13 songs, and and they have that sort of atmospheric sound that you'll hear in some of Lanwash productions. Some of the songs sound laid back. Some of them sound like Canadian folk music. A couple of them sound almost Dylan-esque. It's a really beautiful record, and, and it reminded me that his first album, Acadie, is out of print, and I bought this album in the early 90s, used someplace, and I'm very glad I have it because I love that album. But this is his second album from 1993, and and he's an artist who has a unique sound, but who makes really enjoyable music. There's nothing pretentious about it. It's not overly poppy, it's not overly rocky, but it does have a sound that, that makes it cohere. Doug?
0: A couple of weeks ago, we went to my brother's house for Christmas dinner. And my brother is into jazz, um, lots of different kinds of jazz. But primarily, he really digs um, early traditional jazz, like the Paul Whiteman Orchestra and Bix Beidebeck and Django Reinhardt and, and a lot of the stuff from that era. So it's not surprising to hear that sort of thing on his uh, music system when you go over to visit. So dinner is going on, and it, at some point, I began to recognize one of the songs that was playing, and it sounded like it was recorded in the 20s, but for goodness sake, if it wasn't Love is the Drug, and I turned to him and I said, is this Love is the Drug? And he looked at me as if he'd been waiting for me to notice what he had on the CD. Turns out, this was a recording called The Jazz Age by the Brian Ferry Orchestra. Brian Ferry, uh, of course, of Roxy Music, lead singer and chief songwriter, I suppose, he put out this album about four or five years ago, and he took a bunch of Roxy Music songs, Love is the Drug, Virginia Plain, Bogus Man, a bunch of them, and he arranged them in this 20s, jangly jazz style. Now, you might think a plan like that would go wrong pretty fast, but by golly, this sounds not only authentic, but absolutely mind-bendingly fascinating. Um, it's not the sort of thing I'm going to listen to a lot, but I definitely want to give it a listen again. Not only are the arrangements very authentic, the musicianship is authentic, and the recording is very authentic. And I- I'm not surprised because I'm sure he found a bunch of English studio musicians who are capable of playing in this 20s style. I mean, if you've ever seen any British television, you know that there are a lot of period shows and a lot of the theme music for those shows are done in period style, so it doesn't surprise me that there are musicians who can handle this. It's really quite fascinating, and if you get a chance, give it a listen. It is Brian Ferry, the Brian Ferry Orchestra, the Jazz Age, and it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.